You're listening to The Dirt on the Past, a show on history and archaeology and why it matters today. You can find us on the Extreme History Project website and also on kgvm.org. Thanks for listening. Welcome to The Dirt on the Past from the Extreme History Project and KGVM Community Radio. Whether digging up a site or dusting off the archives, we bring you some of the most fascinating and cutting-edge research in history and archaeology and discuss why it matters today. Join me, Nancy Mahoney, alongside co-host Crystal Alegria, as we converse with anthropologists, archaeologists, and historians about how they bring the past alive. We are so excited to have Jill Falcon Mackin with us today talking about indigenous food sovereignty. Jill and I have known each other for many years. I won't say how many. (laughs) And I've had the opportunity to work with Jill on a few projects. Jill helped us at Extreme History Project with our historic walking tour of Bozeman Creek a few years ago. And we use her words at the beginning of that tour to describe the importance of water and help our tour participants better understand the sacred aspect of water. So thanks, Jill, for doing that. Um, I'm going to read your bio now as well. It's very impressive. (laughs) Jill is a member of the Anishabe Turtle Mountain Ojibwe Bear Clan and is dedicated to working for the revitalization of Buffalo Nation's food systems indigenous food sovereignty, and the reintegration of traditional land practices. In her doctoral research, she is examining the food system of her own ancestors and the natural law which guided Anishabi relationship with the web of life. She is a doctoral candidate in the Department of History and Philosophy at Montana State University right here in Bozeman. Her career has included work on indigenous education initiatives, with Native Nations, and in Washington, D.C. More recently, she facilitated MSU's Department of Native American Studies accreditation engagement with the World Indigenous Nations Higher Education Consortium. She co-chairs the American Indian Institute, which, which mission is the continuation of ancestral knowledge and indigenous ceremonial practices. She lives here in Bozeman with her partner and their children. She is grateful to live in Bozeman, Montana, as we all are, which is the ancestral home of the Absalaga, Amasaki, Kani, Shoshone, and so many others. Thank you for being here with us today, Jill. Thank you for having me. Yes. So like Crystal, Jill, you and I have worked together a little bit, and we've learned together um, in the past few years. When I was at MSU and decided to go back to get a degree in American studies, I was coming from a background in anthropology and archaeology into history and Native American studies. I took a federal Indian law class with Dr. Kristen Ruppel, and that was one of my very favorite classes. And I think um, my mind was blown with how much I learned about the history of our nation by studying federal Indian law. Uh, Very eye-opening and disturbing, but Mm -hmm. fascinating. And the other class was with Dr. Billy Smith. Um, That was my other favorite class. Shout out to you, Billy. And that was all about early American history, which I thought I knew and thought wasn't going to fascinate me. And the discussions that we had in that class were fantastic. We also had a class with Michael Reedy on history of science, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. That was also. And from you, I really got a chance to broaden my understanding of non-Western ways to look at science, to look historically, um, whether it's at our nation, in indigenous peoples, all of that. And I feel from that whole education and, and being able to have classes with you in it, I'm a better anthropologist, archaeologist, and historian for it. So it's been great to have those experiences with you. And I just wondered if you could start us off by talking about what you're working on right now, which is um, defining for us maybe what you consider to be food sovereignty, particularly indigenous food sovereignty. Sure. Thank you. Yes, we've had some really great 
opportunities. I think that interdisciplinary type discussion really leads us to rich understandings of the work that we do. Um, I'd like to start by just uh, introducing myself in my language. Bojo nindiname maganadok bishkane mishtadam akwe indishnakaz makwa indodam mikanak kwaji indunjaba anishnabe akwe midewin akwe indau. And I just say hello all my relatives. I'm Jill Falcon Mackin. My Anishinaabe spirit name is Bishkane Mishtadamakwe, which means Flaming Horsewoman. And I'm a member of the Bear Clan. I'm also Turtle Mountain Ojibwa, um, which is a part of the Anishinaabe people. I am also a member of the Midei Society. Um, and I'll speak more about that in a bit. But uh, food sovereignty is our right to eat those foods that we co-evolved with for thousands and thousands of years together. And there's lots of ways to define food sovereignty, um, but it's it's a, a matter of being able to be in relationship with the foods that sustained you in an indigenous way. Um, the Buffalo Nation's food system was the longest sustained lifeway on this continent. Um, so if we want to talk about sustainability, uh, I think that looking to the, those foods that sustained us for that long in this location are really very important to the future. Um, in the Anishinaabe worldview, we're in a time which we called Onijeikwe, which means changing earth time. And that is the reason that I came back to, uh, rather late in my career to get a doctoral degree, because I could see that because of changing earth time, we were not going to be in a position to eat well from this landscape, um, because we're very much addicted to a fossil fuel-based um, delivery of food in this, in this region. And uh, while here in Bozeman we eat some very wonderful foods and we have those at our disposal, um, in Indian country in Montana that is not the case at all. Um, and so the, 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 the fact that the food system is not sustainable or equitable were the driving um, importance of, of, of getting a degree that would allow me to see that in a different way. Um, and be able to help to work for food sovereignty. So I work um, as part of the Montana Native Land, or the MSU Native Land Project, and we have been working with Amskapipikani, the Blackfeet tribe, in their holistic land management plan, and we've done a food sovereignty strategic plan up at, um, with the community there. Uh, that's been very eye-opening to see, you know, um, in the course of uh, the 1800s, um, especially in about a 20-year span, the buffalo were extinguished. Um, our food system was radically altered from one in which we moved across the land following a seasonal round to one that we were um, relegated to reservations and became the first recipients of processed foods. Mm-hmm. So those processed foods came intermittently and sometimes not in great shape on big white steamboats up the Missouri, uh, were then delivered by Indian agents out to the people sporadically. They contained mostly white foods, and as we know, that doesn't represent a broad uh, nutritional base for the people. Um, So white rice, white flour, uh, lard, uh, white sugar, those kinds of things are all highly addictive and not helpful in, and so today um, we see the health disparities between the native population and, and the rest of the population. And native people are um, on average dying 20 years younger than the rest of the population. Um, those health disparities, inflammatory disease that comes from a poor diet are really uh, a part of that picture. So we are looking at ways to reintegrate ancestral foods, rebuild relationships with ancestral foods. And um, as, uh, as it's been often said, we do not have sovereignty until we are able to manage our own food system, until we can feed ourselves. I was just about to say, when, um, when thinking about that term, indigenous food sovereignty or food sovereignty in general, it seems to me that is the basis for any and all sovereignty. It's 
for your life, your sustenance, your health, if you don't have food sovereignty, you don't really have sovereignty as a people. And so it's interesting to me that it hasn't always been, as archaeologists, we've always studied food systems in the past of other peoples as the basis. We study environment and food systems, subsistence going hand in hand. But I think we often forget how that is the most vital aspect for any people to have control over their own lives in any meaningful way going forward. So that's a wonderful term, and I'm excited to hear more about what you're doing in your work. And, you know, I think that with food goes land. Mm-hmm. And so I think that, that you explain that beautifully, what happened with the food and that, that loss of food sovereignty. But, and can you explain a little bit about how the land was lost within that same system? Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, Anishinaabe people, like most people of the Northwestern Plains, lived in a a very highly sophisticated manner of movement across the land with a, a division of labor and um, sharing of spaces that was really important to the to their existence and making that food system work sustainably. Um, and so the relationship people had to the land was very, very important to being able to have food sovereignty at that time. And so when people were moved to a static community um, on a reservation, that meant um, that they weren't able to harvest, hunt, tend the wild plots that they were tending prior to reservation life. And that was an incredible break in not only the sustenance, but just in our relationship to place, um, our relationship to animals, our relationship to plants. You know, um, when the spring comes, I have a a deep relationship with the plants. When the spring comes, I'm so happy to see those plant relatives again. You know, and I can't imagine what kind of grief there was just in not being able to move with the herds. Or, or go to the places where the berries were gathered, where the prairie turnips were dug. Um, but to have to go through that grief of a whole life way going away and then all those relationships being broken. And uh, our, our whole worldview is relational. When we pray, when we acknowledge one another, we say nikanis or nindiname maganadok. It means all my relatives. And... Uh, you know, it's not just it's not just people who are relatives. It's it's relatives who are other than human as well. Um, in the Anishinaabe worldview, for example, um, there's a different way of seeing humans altogether in our placement in the web of life, and that is that we showed up last. That we were. Um, the last ones to arrive in creation. So that means everybody else is an older brother or older sister, that we learn from those older brothers and older sisters. We learn from the water. We listen to the animals. We listen to the wind. We we spend time out on the land to be in relationship. So, you know, that's like taking away somebody's education system when you say now you have to stay in this one place. Um, beyond taking away the sustenance, it's really breaking life ways in a very dramatic way. So the relationship with the land is really important. Um, the relegation to reservations was kind of done very abstractly. So for instance, Anishinaabe people had intermarried as we became came further and further west with the buffalo. We became Plains Ojibwa. We came into deep relationship with the Cree and the Cinnabon. And there was so much intermarriage that we were very indistinguishable from one another. Well, this really confused the federal government because they're like, well, you know, they're trying to take people by tribe, which was kind of a false notion, and force them into a piece of land that here your Blackfeet go over here, here your Northern Cheyenne go over here. Yes, yeah. And put a border around it. And put a border around it. Well, you know, what if your husband's a Cinnabon and, mm. you know, what if you're Cree and what if you're Ojibwa and what if you're all mixed and it's sometimes you're traveling with his band and sometimes you're traveling with your band. 
And maybe that's gone on for generations. And so the government was really forcing a false notion of boxes that you could clearly sort people into. And that doesn't work for anybody, whether you're Native or non. What I've really come to understand, both through my research and through, through my own search for my own personal identity, is that race is really a construct and that we... We pick and choose how we're going to identify. You know, we might identify as white, but if you really looked at our heritage, it might not represent that way. If you really looked at even your, your DNA test, it might not represent that way. And I think everybody is way more mixed than they care to represent themselves. And it's, it's psychologically that's messy. Psychologically and socially, that takes a lot of soul-searching. Mm -hmm. But I think that if we were all able to represent as Métis or with Met, not as in the tribe or the cultural designation Métis, but just as more mixed Métissage mm -hmm. have, having happened, mm -hmm. I think if we would, would recognize ourselves in that way, we would be in a situation where it would be much more difficult to carry out some of these racial violences that we are seeing going on right now. Absolutely, absolutely. And that makes all of that history relevant and all of the new science coming out of genetics supports all of that mm -hmm. mixed and complicated. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, no neat boxes. Um, but before we move on, I just wanted to, to say the stories and, and the way you describe how um, indigenous people, your people particularly, think about their relations to plants and animals. Um, humans were the last to come along. I mean, it makes perfect sense in terms of everything we learn either through other knowledge systems about mm -hmm. that. And, and then that coevolution with all the plants and animals that we depend on, I don't even think coevolution is the right word, but that constant interaction and mutualism, you really are all related what's in your body the interactions between all those things so to me it's just such a um a very correct way of understanding where humans are in relation to land environment place and all of the other living uh, things and non-living things within those places um, we talk about that a lot in an environmental anthropology class i have and, it, and it's very interesting to see which students right away um, it makes perfect sense to them. Other students have learned very much to segment things into blocks. So that seems a very indigenous versus non-indigenous way, but I'm hoping we're kind of moving past that in, in a lot of cases. I hope so, too. Um, we have a, a prophecy in our um, way of seeing uh, the prophecy of the seven fires and that's really really relevant to this time this changing earth time that we're in right now um, the way that prophecy goes is that the people will one day get to a place where there's uh, a trail and that trail forks and in one direction there's a scorched earth ahead and in the other direction there's a verdant green path laying before them and the way the teaching goes is that when we get to that time when the earth is burning, uh, we have to go back along our path um, and pick up our bundles and pick up our teachings and our language and our songs. And in that is our worldview. In that is that connection to all our relatives, that way of seeing that flips that hierarchy where humans were on top that maybe came from science and Christianity, but it's definitely enlightenment thought. It came from places in a different way of seeing. But we have to go back along our path. We're told you have to go back along your path and pick those things up. But that the only way you can go forward and that everyone can go forward to, to follow that green path is if we do it together which means we do it together with people who are not Native or don't maybe identify as Native um, and share those teachings with everyone. So, and, and I feel like in, in all my soul searching about what is it to be Native, I think that 
if you go back far enough in anyone's history, so you see true. some people, you see a connection to the land that's far yes. different than the one that we have Everybody now. Everybody in their ancestry has, was native somewhere at some point. And mm -hmm. I think that worldview probably, from what we understand about any hunter-gatherers, which we all were far enough back, that is the way all hunter-gatherers view the world. And so mm -hmm. various transitions... Um, that's such a lovely way to think about um, how to choose that fork is you have to have to choose that worldview in order mm -hmm. to, to get the verdant path. Um, and, and we all do need to go forward together. Yes. We can't, there's no way that we're not going to be able we're not going to be able to go forward if we're not together. So, right. so yeah. And I am sensitive to the fact that, you know, colonization has happened and it does really mean something different to be a member of a Native American community now to be on the receiving end of um, what it means to be colonized. Mm -hmm. there, there is something that really changes um, who we are in society and there are you know it, it's also very important to recognize that there are very different cultures and I don't want to you know, kind of wash that all away. I just want to say that I think that it is possible for people to to search in who they are and where they are and find that connection to land again that sees things in a different way, um, more as a web of life in which humans were the last to show up and and to let Mother Earth lead. I mean, that's the work that's being done by Mother Earth right now, um, in the Anishinaabe worldview, there's male and female energy, um, and that that's engendered in all of our worldview. Uh, the men are fire keepers, the women are water walkers, water keepers. And so the water is seen as female, the male energy is fire, the, the sun is seen as grandfather, the, the moon is seen as grandmother, and the grandmother controls all the waters of all of Earth and all the female cycles of all species. And so it makes sense, too, in this time when there's too much heat energy in the ocean that's causing these drying convection cycles along our western coast and these horrible storm cycles further south that are very violent, that that heat, too much heat being in the water is an upset in the balance, just like we see in our culture, an imbalance in gender um, uh, relationships right now. And so in the Anishinaabe world, th that, that work of, of, of acknowledging all our relatives is to acknowledge some of who, they, who we know them to be, the, the, what their work is to do in this world, and to be able to work every day for that balance. That's what those teachings and songs and stories teach us. Mm. So you're not Blackfeet, as we've talked about, but you've worked with them and working with them on issues of food sovereignty. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that work and the Native Land Project, and maybe um, if you're also working with other indigenous nations in Montana or plan to. Yeah. So, um, no, I'm not Blackfeet. I'm Ojibwa. I grew up in Blackfeet country Ooh. and very close to the Blackfeet reservation. I've been working with... Um, um, Blackfeet or Amskapi Pekani for five years, and um, they have an incredible initiative there um, in holistic land management planning that covers so many aspects of the food system. And so when we go to food sovereignty work, there's lots of different ways to enter into food sovereignty work. Like Sometimes that looks like gardens, resiliency gardens. Sometimes that looks like saving ancestral seeds. Sometimes that's food pantries. And um, But Blackfeet is doing food sovereignty at a very high level that involves things like conservation and um, new grazing plans and um, regenerative agriculture, beaver mimicry. Um, wow. Are they uh, sort of and, on the leading edge of some of this work? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that they're doing right now is a feasibility study about a meat processing plant that would be a multi-species meat processing plant. And so as many people know, if you're trying to get local meat in Montana, one of the big impasses is that the, the processing system is really backed up. 
and you know trucking animals a long distance and then selling them back you're not going to get that good that good stuff back into the system here so we don't have a lot of meat processing plants here in montana or close yeah and they're they're small operations okay Okay. um and kind of spread out montana is such a huge state that getting your animals to a processing plant and then getting that into the market locally is um some of the hurdles in front of processors or producers if they want to if they want to do that and consumers and so you know at blackfeet they're looking at developing their own multi-species processing plant which would be brilliant and would serve not just them but a region and they're in a very beautiful pristine landscape that they're raising animals they are cattle producers and now also bison producers and getting those into getting that meat which especially if it's grass finished Mm. because if we know it's grass fed and grass finished the omega-3s are very high in that meat getting that meat delivered in the market so that it's in the senior center and the schools and the grocery stores locally that's a big part of food sovereignty is if you can get the good food that you're producing yourself delivered right in your own community then you have some agency over your own health outcomes yeah. Right. Wow, that would be enormous on so many levels, and then, and then it would provide jobs as well, and cut down on the distances and fossil fuels involved in trucking these things. That would be amazing, and then they could even be exporting to other communities in mm-hmm. Montana. So yeah, I think that it. You know, if we look at our our worldview, uh, the buffalo is an older brother that has provided for us for 13,000 plus years. So thinking about how do we raise up new folks that will be the professionals in the indigenous food system, I think we need to think differently about buffalo management, per se, um, and think about it as uh, husbandry or even just you know, working with buffalo um, to raise them. Um, and, and buffalo are on reservations just like Native people, whether that's Yellowstone National Park or anywhere where they're relegated um, to a really limited movement. But there is a great need to develop those programs, educational and research programs that are going to support using indigenous knowledge and Western science as a companion um, to to develop programs that will produce those professionals that in the future are going to be working in the indigenous food system. So those might be food scientists. Those might be directly the ones who are working on the land with the buffalo. Um, but buffalo are a completely different creature than cattle, and um, that we need to acknowledge that and develop programs that reflect that. And so we're doing that up at Blackfeet with a pilot program, a Buffalo Field School, um, and I'm very excited about the work that the Blackfeet Community College is doing around that. And that pilot program, I think we have so much to learn, where the students there will learn about in in seasonal modules based on indigenous knowledge, and uh, then they'll learn Western science's role, the, the role of Western science in doing buffalo ecology work. I just had a quick question before we move on. When you mentioned grass finished Mm -hmm. versus sort of corn finished, which is what they do with some bison, if we're taking an indigenous food system somewhat out of a capitalist economy, if there's another way, are you less beholden to try to fatten those bison quickly at the end with corn you know so that has all these health implications and other things too can you speak to that a little bit about the pressures that maybe other um, managers of herds have and leads them to finish with corn which ends up being less healthy overall for for us for them and for us right yeah I think we really have to look at the long-term cost analysis of what it costs to manage diabetes and things that come from eating a diet that's really high in omega-6s, which if you corn finish meat, then you're going to have a higher omega-6 uh, account in that, that meat. And then, so then it's just not as healthy. I mean, it's like feeding sugar to the animal. And if we eat the animal, we're, we're taking that on too. 
And so I think that it's really important to think about those long-term costs, which is a different way of thinking in um, a capitalist-dominant system. Um, so, yeah, there's rethinking to do for sure. On many levels. That, on, it's back to the sovereignty yeah, question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're going to take control of your own health outcomes, you have to take control of where your food comes from, and you have to be in a position to to think long, more long-term. So I know, Jill, you talked about this coming back into the community and being at the, the local grocery store, store and the food pantry and the senior center. Do you have plans, does this program have plans to widen it out to a larger region or nation nationally mm -hmm. or globally mm -hmm. um, to ship food um, outside of the Blackfeet Reservation? They do. They're, they're working on developing their own food code, which uh, Native nations have the sovereignty to do that. Uh, they're also working on um, d doing some, some uh, international marketing uh, north of the line. And, of course, Amskapi Bikani is just one of four bands of Blackfeet. Right, and right. so they're working with uh, some of the other bands north of the line for that. Um, but we're, we're, food sovereignty is going, this work is going on amongst all our tribal nations, and I'm in the midst of developing an indigenous food sovereignty network website, and we're, we're networking uh, the work of many Native nations in Montana together. Um, and what will come of that is a food producer's directory where uh, Native producers will be able to uh, market their own products and consumers will be able to see that amongst other things that'll be on that website but it's really about taking the capacities of many native nations who are trying to do that work and putting it all together so that we can address things like policies that need to be changed and um, not be reinventing the the project from one site to the next because there is limited capacity for everybody in doing this work. When you think about each Native nation having their own food system, there's a lot of work to be done in each one. Right. Yeah. Right. Is there anything that um, people who are interested in this can do to help support these food systems, train, you know, support indigenous food systems and in getting them on their way? Is there anything listeners of this could do to get involved in any way? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the, some of these are budding initiatives, but um, others are, are more structured and, and advanced at this point. Um, as far as like accessing indigenous foods and eating indigenous foods, um, the, the Salish Kootenai has a, um, uh, an organization called Fish Keepers, and you can purchase some of their items at Town and Country in Bozeman. Um, but they're harvesting fish and 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 taking lake trout out of the uh, Flathead Lake so that that ecosystem can be restored. Fantastic. Um, so that's one, and you know we're really working to build that network so that uh, there'll be more visibility for other indigenous food producers. Um, and building the infrastructure like meat processing plants to be able to support that. So. Okay. I'm going to take this in a little bit different direction now. You bet. <laughs> and um, we're going to, you know, Jill, you're such a spiritual person. And I've attended a few ceremonies that you've facilitated here around the Bozeman area. You're a spiritual leader in our community. And after reading more about your personal history in preparation for this interview, I love to learn that you've been on that path for some time. In fact, you have a master's in Catholic theology mm -hmm. and even considered taking vows, becoming a nun. Mm -hmm. So, um, but you were led in a little bit of a different direction than that. Mm -hmm. It didn't quite... Um, you didn't quite find what you needed within that theology. And now you're a member of the um, Anishinaabe, Anishinaabe, I've been saying it a little bit wrong, <laughs> okay. Anishinaabe Medowin Society. Is yeah. that right? Yeah. Did I say it right? The Anishinaabe Medewin Society. Medewin. I know, yeah, I wasn't okay. quite there. I practiced it. Anishinaabe. Anishinaabe Medewin Society. There yeah. we go. We like to do things. Yeah, yeah. we did like okay. to do it. <laughs> 
hard Thank for you. even those of us, those of us that are studying Anishinaabe, to handle all those double vowels. So, but it's important to learn the language, and it's important to say the the language correctly. So, yeah. so I, I I strive to do that, and so, um, and so you do that though not here in Bozeman, but you um, practice ceremony in Manitoba. So mm-hmm. you and your family travel mm-hmm. over eight thousand miles a year, back and forth, back and forth. There's a lot of uh, a lot to that question, okay. both at a personal level and a historical level, yeah. to, to 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 kind of fill in the blanks on that. But I'm really happy to do so. Okay. Um, so yes, I I was raised Catholic, and our um, a, a lot of Native Americans have been raised Catholic or Christian, um, I was also and are raised Catholic. <laughs> so I have a, a little tiny smidgen of, of shared history there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you know, and my grandma Falcon had thirteen children. She was mm-hmm. um, very, very Catholic. Catholic, <laughs> <laughs> um, and that that comes from the mission. Um, the missions that you know, missionaries were hired by the the American government to be the ones that educated Native Americans, that that set up the first schools on reservations. Um, so that tradition goes a long ways back. Um, but through my life, I um, I became I, I was always very spiritual, and I was very connected to the land very connected to the water. And when I came to, to into my adulthood, um, it felt really wonderful to be working in community. I always worked in uh, Catholic programs, social justice programs, youth programs um, in Haiti, various different things that I was quite committed to social justice and the health of the people. Um, but what was always missing, especially in my prayer life, was that connection to Mother Earth. And that even in my theological studies out in Cambridge, Massachusetts, I felt like I had to really reach to look for that web of life, that connectivity to, to cosmology that, that somehow was just missing. It wasn't there in the theology in the way I wanted it to be or the way that spoke to my spirit. And so I had really been searching my whole life. We were raised off reservation, um, but even at home on the reservation, you know, there was where my grandma lived and so forth. I didn't know people that were really holding the culture in the way that I was imagining um, might be there or knew had once been a part of our Ojibwe way of seeing. And so I just started praying. And I prayed and prayed in my adult life and walked away from taking vows because the resonance just wasn't there. Something was missing. And finally a dream came that showed me the path and even the auntie that I had to connect to. And it was an auntie, uh, Corey Moran, who had been going to our Madey Lodge in Manitoba for 25 years along with her husband. They lived in Albuquerque. He's Dene and they would come up every year for all the way from Albuquerque wow. in there even into their 80s dragging a fifth wheel trailer to get clear to Manitoba wow. to do ceremony so now let's ask the question why couldn't they go to ceremony somewhere closer than yeah or why can't i in montana yeah because the us government had and the canadian government had laws banning indian spiritual practices um, for more than 100 years and so and that's all kinds of indigenous spiritual practices like the sun dance mm-hmm. the ghost dance the famously ghost dance, right, right. and uh, the midday society and so our people follow um, a path called the path of the heart that is the midday one society we practice our ceremony in a long house uh, seasonally so every season we gather and the people that have held that knowledge, kept that knowledge going, are people that have been radically connected to seeing that indigenous people were to, able to continue to exist as indigenous people. So the people that um, head my lodge are founders of the American Indian Movement. They're in wow. their 70s and 80s, and we've been losing them mm-hmm. uh, lately. But they are 
like even during COVID, powerfully convicted that every day they need to be doing something to transfer this knowledge um, so that our life ways can be perpetuated. So we're doing Zoom calls even when we can't cross the Canadian border, um, and people are doing ceremonies in their own homes and their own communities. Um, that's but it's, hard. It's not the same, yeah. but, but the persistence, that's Yeah, that's it's so not the same as yeah. being there and hearing yeah. the drums yeah, and no. gathering with everybody. Right. And but at least it's happening. The work that we do, yeah, but at least it's happening. So it's... it's um, it's a real act of resistance that we're able to to follow that life way, that path. Um, it's a beautiful healing path um, with seven grandfather teachings that comprise our natural law, which is that beautiful way of seeing in connection with the rest of the web of relations. And uh, I mean, the first day I walked in there, I knew I was home. Mm-hmm. And um, it's not that I didn't gain a great deal from being on a spiritual path in a Catholic way for a long time. Um, I learned community and love and kindness and sacrifice and humility. I learned a lot of things there. But it was not the fullness of spirit that I feel when I when I go and I'm practicing in our way. And I'm really happy that that is a possibility for my children and it'll be a possibility for people in the future because we continue to do that work. Mm. So. Well, thanks for sharing that with us, mm-hmm. Jill. I think it really um, is so much a part of what you do with your work but how you live your life. And so when we were thinking about doing this interview, I really wanted to ask you about that. And of course, as um, and then I got nervous about asking you, <laughs> so I'm glad you were, you were willing to share that because I think it's so important and so significant. Yeah, I, I think that you know I've struggled with this somewhat in writing my dissertation and in my academic work, how much to share of mm-hmm. who I am. Um, but I think I really have to bring all of me to the work, and I think that um, to be authentic, you can't check one part of yourself, though I know that everyone doesn't want to have the conversation about spirituality. And even, you know, in our, our Native communities, um, it's still like people are very, own very much a Christian path, and that's fine. But I think it's just wonderful, too, that there are places where our ceremonies are still alive and well, that if someone wants to come to that, it's there for them. I think that's important. And so I I try to be all of me, and I think in an indigenous way, you cannot really uh, check spirituality and, not, and, and still be bringing the whole worldview to the writing or the work or the life that you're living. And that's something I wanted to ask you a little bit more about, because I could see some of that coming through in courses that we took together. You're not the first indigenous person, woman, to be in a traditional academic environment studying, whether it's history or ecology, science, things like that. One of my favorite books I read this summer, we were talking about earlier, by Robin Wall Kimmerer, Braiding Sweetgrass. Mm -hmm. Um, So moving to both my husband and I about her journey to keep on with that perspective that is that everything is connected and keep her native indigenous spirituality as she's trying to get her doctorate in a very formal science-based ecology program. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how you are navigating some of that struggle because um, it seems as if we want to go forward in all of these disciplines we want to have multiple voices. And this mm-hmm. goes beyond just indigenous and non-indigenous, of course, in everything we're talking about today with Black Lives Matter and everything. But just in your case, if you can speak to that a little bit more. Sure. So I had a, a career prior to coming back from my doctoral degree working in Indian education, both for tribes and in Washington, D.C. And um, what really excited me when I was looking at things at a really national level was some of the work that was being done up in Alaska. And they were doing incredible knowledge recovery 
up at uh, University of Alaska Fairbanks. And so that fascinated me. Um, it was knowledge being brought to the table where they were formally, formal, formally developing curriculum based on Native ways of seeing the world so that, you know, a, a math curriculum might be based on time in a fish camp with the whole family or the whole community. And that was a really different way of, of, of forming pedagogy for school. And so when I looked at what, what do I want to do, and I came to the history program at MSU, I knew that I didn't want to study up so far away from our own people and our own land than as far as Alaska. I knew that I wanted to be close to home. And one of those reasons is that one methodology on in indigenous research methods is that you would go to the land because that's your first teacher. So how can I do that in the Arctic, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, in that previous career uh, journey, I had worked with an organization called the World Indigenous Nations Higher Education Consortium. So in, in the 80s and 90s, educators from around the world and native educators came together in conferences and they started saying, hey, it's not just you guys who are colonized, we are colonized and we're all facing kind of the same problems of assimilation in our school systems. How can we remain who we are as indigenous people, whether we're Maori or Satmi or First Nations or wherever we come from, how can we remain that and instill that in our children but have them go to a school that has a completely different way of seeing the world. Um, and so WINHEC, which is the acronym for this, this organization, was formed. And recently I helped with the accreditation process that the Native American Studies Department is going through with that organization. But it really asks the question, how can we do the best education for these students in this place? And the ones that get to answer are the Native communities. It's not an outside accrediting organization that makes you jump through the hoops and meet their standards. It's the communities that decide what makes that best education. Oh, wow. yeah. And under the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, it, it, it states we have the right to educate our students in our own culture, our young people, to be raised as Anishinaabe, to be raised as Blackfeet. So what does that mean at an institution like MSU? And that's the question we really had to wrestle with in that accreditation process. And it was a very fruitful dialogue with Native people answering those questions. Is that finished now, Jill, or is it still It's ongoing? mostly finished. Okay. The site review had to be done, and um, that means a team of educators from places like Australia and, and Hawaii and other places would be flying in. And oh, so and then, set back by the pandemic, oh, yeah. Yeah. but um, hopefully very soon okay. will be to completion on oh, that. Good. Yeah. Well, congratulations. Yeah. But the That's process amazing. is actually really the work yeah, because it's right. a work of self-discovery as... Right you know, these 12 nat native nations of Montana, yeah. So. so do you find in your own work writing your own dissertation thesis that you're navigating um, a, a pathway where you're working in um, different worldviews or braiding them together in some way? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm braiding together archival work like the journals of missionaries and explorers along with the songs I know from ceremony, the time spent on the land, um, you know, uh, oral history interviews, um, advising from my cultural advisory board. It's it's a variety of different places that my knowledge is for for this dissertation is coming from, and even the the title of my um, dissertation, which is Mini Guijuin, that which is given to us. Um, it means, you know, our food is given to us, and our food system was, like, really flexible, right? <laughs> so right. mostly buffalo for a long time. But, you know, if, if, if rabbits and antelope were the things that were available, that's what we were eating, and that's what made us, you know, able to sustain that life way for so long, that we moved right. to the food instead of waiting for it to come to us, and we... We ate uh, what was given to us. And so it flips that worldview right off the bat mm -hmm. in, in, in just the naming of it. Right. Wow. That's great to hear about. 
Yeah. Yeah. Look forward to reading it. <laughs> Me too. So, you know, Jill, you and I have talked a lot about your research that you've been doing over the course of the last few years. And mm-hmm. and last time we talked, which was pre-pandemic, yeah. <laughs> um, you were talking about your experience um, in museum collections mm-hmm. and more particularly the Glenbow Archives in Calgary. Um, can you speak a little bit to that? Because I'm really interested in this because, of course, um, Nancy and I have backgrounds in archaeology. Mm-hmm. And of co- course, archaeology is all about material culture and objects. And archaeologists are known for um, for taking those objects out of context a lot of times and putting them into museums. Mm-hmm. And sometimes those objects are... Um, mundane but sometimes they are very sacred Mm -hmm. and so we have these sacred objects out of the place that they're supposed to be and so as you go into these archival collections into these museum collections you come face to face with that Mm -hmm. and so I just and I know we talked a little bit about that and so I was wondering if you could speak to that sure so um, a little over a year ago well, for the last couple of years, some of my elders and other academics that attend ceremony with me up in Manitoba, we'd been talking about going to Glenbow because they have a, a beautiful collection of our birch bark scrolls. And the birch bark scrolls are something that it was a, a method of recording our songs and ceremonies and teachings um, on the on a piece of birch bark using glyphic writing. And then somebody in the Midday Society would be responsible for holding on to that set of scrolls. And and they were cached underground to protect that knowledge, especially under spiritual persecution. And every 15 years, dug up. And then if they were deteriorating, they were recreated. Wow. And so that was a way of passing knowledge in a written way. We had written text. Sounds just like the Dead Sea Scrolls, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, right? And it's just different paper, different place, and the stories of your people. It's yeah. fascinating. So bibliogra- bib- the Bibliographical Society of America had a call for um, a fellowship mm-hmm. to study old books, and I'm like, hey, oh, oh, there you go. I got wow. an old book. <laughs> that would be such a cure. They, How fun. They loved the idea so much, mm. they gave us two fellowships, which allowed us to take five people that were midday. And all, to Glenbow's credit, they only allow members of our spiritual society to view those scrolls. Mm. So we were there about cultural knowledge recovery, right? Because mm-hmm. so much was taken so fast that we're actually going there to learn our own ceremonies and songs. Oh, wow. So uh, Edna Manitowabi, who's this beautiful Akwe, beautiful woman, our Ogima Akwe, or head chief woman in our lodge, she was coming with us, which was just like so humbling, coming from uh, our sacred island at Manitoulin out in Lake Huron. And so she made a request of, before we get to the museum, could you please see if they have any of our old drums? And so we made the request, and when we got, when we arrived, Calgary, our whole team, and the first day that we came to the Glenbow, which is in a big high-rise downtown in Calgary, and you go to the eighth floor, um, which is just a storehouse for cultural items cultural items you know and um behind lots of doors that it's all climate controlled and so forth uh right away the curator who is just the most amazing wonderful curator joanne schmidt she said we have those drums and would you like to see those drums first and we had all come with our bundles ready to do ceremony and we walked through these doors and we get back into this huge well, in Canadian terms, a hockey rink size room wow. <laughs> of like plywood cabinets. And each cabinet just has a piece of paper on it that says Cree, Circumpolar North, Blackfeet. And this goes on forever and ever in this huge space. And she walked us clear through and we get to the very back. And here are like 20 of our drums. And a drum really matters a lot because that's the heartbeat of the people. And those are passed from one knowledge holder to the next. And those are the, the ones who are sounded when the lodge is gathered. So that represents that many lodges 
which are no longer working, mm. no mm. longer exchanging knowledge, mm-hmm. singing, s- doing ceremony. And so we we went, and right away we, we, we did ceremony for those drums, and we spent the entire week sitting with those drums, sitting with those scrolls, and just taking it all in. And we've come into a dialogue now with the Glenbow where their curator is just like so open to understanding what these drums and these items mean to us. And uh, for us, they're really sacred beings. They're beings, not, you know, they have their work to do. Just like we have our work to do, just like water and wind has its work to do, these, these items were created to do work. And so then the question becomes, how, how do we initiate that again? And so by us going there and praying um, was one step. Another step is those items are now going to travel to our lodge in the spring. And we'll be able really to sit with amazing. them in ceremony. Wow. And so we're... How, do you know how old they are? Well, some of them are probably from the 19th century. Mm. Some of them are maybe a little newer. Um, when cultural items are taken or gathered or even given to a museum, um, so say maybe a family becomes Christian and they they don't have a knowledge holder in their family anymore, and so they're no longer connected to those sacred items. Mm. Or sometimes they were bought and sold when people were in desperate situations. Mm. You know, and there's... There's yep. good and bad and a lot of mixed yeah, situations. Of yeah, but but happen. a lot of times, like, no information comes mm-hmm. with those items yes. or very little. And so, of course, the first thing to do is to try to see if anybody knows who these are. And with every drum, there's a bundle. But we don't know if, because a drum is just part of a bundle. So there's a pipe. There may be pelts and other items that would go with that, but in a cult in the museum, museum system, system oh, yeah. those are cataloged out and separated. separated. So right yeah. now we're just trying to look at can we pull the bundles together? So there's a lot of we've done a lot of Zoom calls in the last few months, just trying to bring a group of knowledge holders together with the museum which sadly, um, the museum staff was cut by 80% following COVID. And luckily, the indigenous curator was one of the last standing staff. And so we're able to still work with her. Good, good. good. Amazing. But um, that's the process we're in. And I think that it's cultural knowledge recovery, and it's part of decolonization, which is just super messy. Mm-hmm. And if you can find the right people whose hearts are really open to do it, it's a pretty fantastic journey. It's That's very amazing. exciting. I, I just, my limited experience in museums, working in museums or going into view collections in museums, when you mentioned this lovely woman who is the curator and, and how open and thrilled she was to help, I get the sense that many of people in those positions that I've interacted with are so grateful that somebody has this kind of connection to these objects that they are stewarding in often these vast uh, repositories Mm -hmm. where they're just sitting there and to know that these things still have meaning in the present and that they've done something good by watching over them and then providing access I think it makes the work that they do feel a lot more relevant. So I'm, I'm hoping that's the way the museum world goes, because yeah. it seems to me, even among archaeologists that I talk about, um, first of all, it would have been a cultural anthropologist that took those drums, not an archaeologist, but um, <laughs> we're not all bad. In that case, yeah. But, but even archaeological objects, I think archaeologists are coming around to, once they've been able to examine record study they they feel very much so that these items should rest somewhere where they ought to be and that they would like to have those discussions with the indigenous people or you know some range of a a committee involving indigenous perspectives Um, but that's so incredibly exciting to hear that the drums are going to be allowed to leave 
and go to a lodge. That's I wonder the last time they'll they be said. able to visit. Yeah, they'll go back. Right, but um, you know, and, and to to be really clear, it's not always the museum's or the curator's decision. Right, to, uh, what happens with those and. Um, in, in, in Alberta's case, it's the Royal Alberta Museum, which has jurisdiction over a decision of whether those will be repatriated or rematriated. Um, and, and even then, that process of returning things, it's to whom and by whose authority within the communities that becomes a very delicate question. And so it's, it's quite complicated. I think that Canada is somewhat ahead of us on many things because of the progressiveness of their truth and reconciliation dialogue. Um, it's put the whole nation in conversation around what does it mean to decolonize. It's going to be a long, ongoing conversation, and one that we probably haven't started here quite as intensely. You know, For it's, sure. it's mm-hmm. happening in patches, I think. Yes. Mm -hmm. But um, I have a friend who's a physical anthropologist, and she's just getting involved in some of these conversations and finds it incredibly difficult and frustrating because she would prefer to have um, an answer, a statement. How do I proceed now Mm -hmm. as I go forward in my career? But I think that's what we have to live with is the complication you can Mm -hmm. undo centuries of colonization actions behavior activity that have ongoing consequences and the people as you said even if the idea is to repatriate or rematriate to who and how how does that happen yeah and and one of the things i usually say when i start a talk with uh like a public talk or something but i'll say here even toward the end of our conversation is um, colonization, in the historical sense, is not the fault of anybody that's here with us right now. But colonization, in all of its remnants and all the ways that it's ongoing and the impacts of what's happened in the past are so real and far-reaching, that is a shared responsibility of everyone. And often that's really displaced on Native people to forge that direction or the ones who are on the receiving end of colonization. Um, but I think it's really the burden of everyone. And again, it's that, that it's a heavy history that we live with. And I, I think that it affects us in ways that we're not even aware of. And um, that there's a lot of violences that could be avoided, a lot of fear that could be dispelled if we were able to confront that with some courage as a, as a society. Just having conversations, mm-hmm. I think, yeah. is the only way forward. I like how you said mm-hmm. it's a heavy history. For everybody, it's a heavy history, but not talking about it doesn't get us anywhere. Right, we have to talk right. about it. We have right. to have conversation around it. Yeah, it can forward. stop sh- short at that well, where do my ancestors fit in? Should I feel right. culpable or guilty? And I just don't think guilt is a helpful thing to anybody. No. Um, it I, we, it's not forward. a helpful emotion. So mm-hmm. I think we need to, to go past that mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. and not place blame. And it's nice that there are some good stories coming out already that we can point to. Um, so good luck with everything you're doing, Jill. It's fascinating work on so many levels both your own personal research and inside and outside the university Mm -hmm. is there any um if people would like to continue to learn about your work and the work that you're doing is there anywhere that they could go to get more information books websites um anything else we we already mentioned the braiding sweet grass book i think that's a, a must read but jill what do you have do you have any favorites Oh, wow. That's a really big question. (laughs) I'm so close to it. Um, Some place that everybody would like to see. Gosh, you guys. (laughs) And I know you spoke about a website that's coming, but isn't here yet. Yeah. Um, There will be a Montana Indigenous Food Sovereignty Network website coming. We don't don't have the URL out on that yet, but um, I think that's a really important response to um, 
being able to see where everyone's doing food sovereignty work and food security work. And since the pandemic, we've really been thrown back on our heels to food security being a very um, imminent thing that we have to address. Um, so I'm hoping that website will do that work. Um, it'll always be connected to the Montana Native Land Project work. Okay. And um, we're also working on a food systems initiative at MSU, and that information will be, wow. be forthcoming as well, and, and just to look for that to come. Um, I just think there's a lot of Indigenous academics doing really great work, and I would say just broadly, I would invite you to look at their work, because so many Indigenous researchers and writers are bringing a very different worldview. And I would just like to emphasize, if if this interview hasn't already, how different that worldview is. And those are, that's important in our times. But I think that that cross-cultural enrichment is really a beautiful gift, too. Well, thank you so much, Jill, for being here with us today. And we so enjoyed the conversation, such important conversations. So... I just really sincerely appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for the work you're doing. Thanks, Jill. So thank you to Jill and thank you to our listeners. And until next time, keep searching out the dirt on the past. You've been listening to The Dirt on the Past, a podcast of the Extreme History Project and Gallatin Valley Community Radio, KGVM. To hear more episodes, visit our website at theextremehistoryproject.org. Thanks for listening, and until next time, keep searching out The Dirt on the Past. <laughs>